Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead, make yourselves comfortable. You can tell it's the week of Christmas. All our students are gone. People are traveling. Keep them in your prayer this week if you can as well. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Legacy Church. Very excited to be with you on this week of Christmas. This is one of my favorite weeks to preach on. I'm not a giant Christmas guy, but I do love this week when it comes to preaching. But before I jump in, every week we've been taking just a moment, just a few minutes to highlight an area of what we're calling Central City, which is almost a 20 square mile circle around where we're heading as a church and relocating as a church in the early part of next year. Um, We've talked about ministries that are active, churches that are active, um, but I'd like to bring something a little bit different to your attention. It's been on national news. If you kind of keep up on the news, I'm a little bit of a news junkie. All the major outlets have had this front and center, not just locally, but nationally, and it was a young man that's been shot in the Lonsdale area. His name is Xavion Dobson. He was 15, just a kid, and, and just to... I guess sum it up as succinctly as I can. There was a shooting in East Knoxville, um, and the woman that was shot had a son who grabbed a gun and another guy or two and guns, and they actually drove and ended up in the Lonsdale neighborhood, which from where we're going to be as a church is east-northeast. It's about 4,400 people living in that neighborhood, and what happened was is they started indiscriminately shooting in different directions, and they did roll up on a house where there were some kids outside celebrating a holiday dinner together, and the gun was discharged towards their direction, and Xavion, 15 years old, dives across three of the girls there and takes a shot, and was shot in the head. He was killed instantly. Um, he was a good kid from all of what I've heard. Kevin actually taught him a few years ago when he went to Northwest, um, and the, th- the thing is, is he was a mentor in some programs there locally in the Lonsdale area trying to kind of stem the tide of gang activity. So of all accounts, he was a good kid. He went to Fulton High School. Chief of police got up and spoke regarding this that happened in Lonsdale. And he said what he'd like is for the communities and for the communities of faith, which it's his way of saying church, if they were going to pray thing is, is he doesn't know what to pray for. He doesn't even know how to tell a church how to pray. He doesn't know how to do that. He just knows that something needs to happen and people need to do it. I think I know what we need to pray for, right? There is gang activity in Knoxville. There's about 1,500, from what I've heard and the stats that I've read that have been on the front page, about 1,500 known gang members. There's about 30 registered gangs in the Knox County area, and allegedly every high school and middle school has at least one known confirmed gang member in it. I've worked alongside those who've been in gangs that are in the ministry now even, right? And what they will always tell you is the big draw to be in a gang when you're in middle school, high school, is the sense of belonging. Because when you're in, you're in. And you're in forever. I mean, you're a part of it. And your back is always watched. And you're always included. Right? I will tell you, that, that is something in us that was broken when sin came along. Because God has already collected us into a family of faith where your back is watched by none other than God himself. And we belong for life with one another. So, listen, programs are not going to fix gang activity. 
It's never happened. It's never going to happen. A program, even a brilliantly run program, is not going to fix gang activity. Jesus Christ is the only, is the only person, the only thing that will change any kind of gang activity that we have, especially in Knox County. So I do want to pray. I want to pray for the Dobson family this morning. I want to pray for Lonsdale as a community that's kind of reeling. Um, in fact, on the weekly, which is a page attached to our website, you can go to our website and find the weekly very easily. You will find a link on the, uh, right underneath the title of the sermon that will take you to the GoFundMe page. If you wanted to give some money to the memorial to help the family out of Xavier and Dobson and how they have the funeral and pay for all of that, I know as a church we will give something as a church as well. Um, but you have the option to do that individually if you want to. So just let's pray just for a moment. Father, we do thank you that although we are not in a gang, by work of your grace towards us, we are in a family. I know that I belong. I know that I am a co-heir. I know that I belong in a family, not because of anything I've done, not because of any initiation right that I have had to get out and do, but because someone else did an active right for me to include me. Jesus came down and did something spectacular to include me and to include us as his church. So, Father, we know that Jesus Christ is the only thing, the only, the gospel is the only thing, and Jesus Christ is the only person that can change a, a, a young man or a young woman's desire to be in a gang. That's it. So I know the chief of police might struggle, Father, on what to pray for. We as a church, we know what we need to pray for. We need to pray for the spread of the gospel not just in Lonsdale, not just in that immediate community, but in all of the county, and specifically in the area that we are headed for, which is a higher concentration of it, Lord, that we would see a difference. We would see those come out of gangs. We would see those refuse gangs, not because they don't want to go to jail as much, and not because they want to honor their family as much as they want to honor Christ. And they are so satisfied, Father, with what you were doing in their life that they don't have a taste for anything that a, a simple gang could offer. So, Lord, I, I hate that this murder has happened, and we do pray for his family. I pray for the, the funeral needs to be taken care of. But, Father, it does highlight a bigger problem. There's a lot of 14 and 15-year-olds walking around right now that will shoot bullets and possibly take bullets before it's all said and done. So, Lord, we pray that you would do something spectacular. And, Lord, that we would even be able to be a part of it. You're very good to us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Again, you can go on the weekly to find the links for all of that giving. Um, but go ahead and turn with me to Titus. We're finishing up a series today because this is the week of Christmas. I think I've been thinking a lot about waiting Waiting for something really does reveal a bunch about us, doesn't it? Some of you are not very good waiters. You don't wait very well, you know. Geico, as a company, is banking a lot on the fact that you won't get upset after waiting for 15 minutes for an insurance quote, right? Because if you've watched TV for longer than 13 minutes, that's been drilled into your cortex that you too could have an insurance quote in 15 minutes or less. And surely that sounds like an important thing. So after 15 minutes, you're not going to feel like it was a real heavy 15 minutes Take the same 15 minutes and stare at a video screen and watch the little buffer sign and you'll lose your mind though, won't you? When your internet activity is so low and the video won't start or the Netflix episode is interrupted. Now that's a long 15 minutes. 
15 minutes can seem like an instant or it can seem like an eternity. If you've ever been to a theme park where there is a new roller coaster, 15 minutes, you jump at that. I mean, 15 minutes, that's a joke. That's a no-brainer, even if you're not really interested in the roller coaster because those waits can go up to four or five hours sometimes. So 15 minutes, nothing, right? 15 minutes for a cup of coffee, well, that's entirely too long. I got to do a wedding a couple days ago, a real fun wedding, and it was Cole and Morgan, um, selectmen, who are here. They'll be back here in a couple weeks. It's real exciting, but it got me reminiscing a little bit about my wedding. And I remember about 30 minutes before I walked down the aisle, about 30 or 45 minutes, I was backstage with all my groomsmen doing what you do. I was nervous. People were talking to me, but I wasn't listening. I was waiting with high anticipation, kind of wringing my hands. I was excited. I wasn't freaked out. I mean, there wasn't like a car running in the parking lot ready to take me away if I needed it. I I wanted to marry this woman, but I didn't know how to occupy all of my anticipation. One of my groomsmen, I don't know why he did it, but he brought in a giant sack of quarter pounders with cheese, right, from whatever fast food. I don't even know. He brought in and I ate one. I'm in my tux and everything. I ate one of these quarter pounders with cheese. And then a second, and then a third, and then a fourth, and I would have eaten a fifth, but there were no left, right? The thing is, is I wasn't hungry at all. (laughs) I was nervous, and I thought, while I was eating, I was focusing on eating this quarter pounder. When I ran out of hamburgers, I actually went into the sanctuary and started greeting people and meeting people like, hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for flying out or driving out. I didn't know you were supposed to do that. I was nervous. Someone had to come physically get me and say, hey, brother, you're not really supposed to do this. It's your wedding. You've got to go back. Go back and hang out. Just get married. Just chill out. I remember the month after we got married. It's the first time I ever got new tires put on the car. You know, in college, I never got new tires put on a car. I'd buy a used tire from a junkyard or whatever, or just ride on the donut for six months, you know. I never really invested that kind of time, but now that I'm, now that I'm married and we have a, a family car, I got a new set of tires because we needed it really bad. Nothing sexy about new tread on a tire. When you get a car back from getting tires put on it, it looks the same, but you've spent a lot of money on it. So not a lot of anticipation, yet there was a lot of waiting. Bored, upset, feeling like the time was wasted. I think how we value what we wait for determines what our wait looks like. Just think about it. How we value what we wait for is going to determine what our wait looks like. And instantly I think of this little tiny passage, a little sentence really in Genesis 29. And don't worry about turning there, but it says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days, just but a few days because of the love he had for her. Right? There's several years has never felt like a few days in any department. But isn't it true how when you love something and you're excited about something, it seems like time just flies by? Or you could be getting tires put on your car and it feels like it's just dripping by. There definitely is a science and a psychology behind wait times. And businesses are paying a lot of money to do research on you to find out where your limits for waiting are in your mood at the end of the waiting. One thing that science has found out is that you endure waiting better when you are occupied with something, 
And isn't that true? I mean, I've been in airports, and listen, there's a lot of waiting. All I need is a fresh battery and a good data plan, and I'm fine. I'm good to go. I could be in my inbox, my calendar. I could be working. I could be reading and getting caught up on news. I could drain a battery real easily, and it just feels like moments went by, even though I might have been waiting for a couple hours or three hours, right? This is why also, if you have noticed in theme parks, especially a big theme park like a Disney World or something like that, the lines have had so much money invested in them to make you feel like the wait was worth it, to occupy you. I mean, some of the lines at Disney World, the set design and the money that went into those, I mean, it just doesn't feel like you've been waiting hardly at all. Museums, some of them even. They've also found that you wait more patiently if you feel like things are moving along, even though they really aren't, right? So you're in the waiting room at the doctor's office, right? And then they make you go and they wait in the patient's room. But you don't really mind as much because you feel like you're at least advancing. Well, at least I'm not in the waiting room now. The doctor's going to come in at any moment. You think that's by accident? Not by accident. Have you also noticed how on your operating system, on your computer, it's not just a little hourglass that turns every second anymore. Now it's got swirls and dots and rotating spheres and all kinds of things to, to trick you into the the, the thinking that it's almost done. Oh, it's, it's almost done downloading. Look at the cute little design. It's, it's going to be done any minute. It's interesting what companies have learned about us. As we finish this series on Advent, we're going to unpack the same passage that we've been working on for a few weeks. But this week, I'd like to look and discuss our wait here on earth, what our wait time looks like, because how we wait reveals how we value what we're waiting for. Let's look at Titus 2. We've been going through verses 11 through 14, and we're going to focus on verses 13 and 14 today, but we're going to read it from the, from the 11th verse. So Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared. We looked at that in week one. That is grace past. Grace appearing, epiphanying out of the darkness in the past. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, that is, grace present, grace now, training and instructing us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And then this week we look at how waiting for our blessed hope, grace before us, in front of us, the appearing of the glory of our great God. That's the only time in the New Testament you see great God and Jesus Christ put together like that, which is a very strong claim for his deity, by the way. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace saves us, grace instructs us, and grace is waiting for us. And today we find ourselves virtually with our faces pressed against the glass as we look to a second advent coming. Advent meaning coming. That's what the word means. A new advent, a new appearing, a new epiphany. You see, Christmas is all about darkness coming to an end. That's really what it's about when you think about it. Christmas, darkness coming to an end. Remember when, when Jesus, as a baby, cries out in a manger and fills that area with the sounds of a baby crying is the very first time God spoke 
and to his people in 400 years. Such a long, pregnant silence that was before that moment in the manger, pierced by the sound of God crying through a baby. It's all about darkness coming to an end. Christmas is not about a baby in a manger more than it is about a king coming back in another darkness. Without the second advent, the first one just doesn't make any sense. It's out of context. When you celebrate Christmas this week, it is best celebrated with the end in mind, with what is coming, the second appearing, the once upon a time only makes sense with a happily ever after. And a happily ever after refocuses what the once upon a time has as far as value to it. Our first advent exists for the sake of the second. Because the first appearing, we have grace coming to save us. And the second appearing, we have glory coming to collect us. They work hand in hand. The first appearing, we have a meek baby. The meekest and most humblest of creation in a manger. But the second, we also have a king coming on a horse. Not crying like a baby, but crying out in victory over what God has done. And this has always, this has always been the plan. It's not on accident. It's part of a very distinct and highly designed plan. If you have a Pandora account, you've been in a retail establishment in the last month, you've heard the song, Mary, Did You Know? Mary, Did You Know? And it's this dialogue between the singer, and I, I can't even remember who wrote it or who the original version came out, um, consisted of, but it's, it's Mary, did you know that this baby that you brought into the world was going to walk on the water? And it's such a great song, and everybody gets real emotionally caught up in it. Can I just tell you, Mary did know. She knew because the angels told her. Zechariah prophesied. She said it out of her own mouth. Read the first chapter of Luke. Mary wasn't clueless. She knew. Be Feel free to thumbs down that song, right? Because it's great, it's emotional, it's Christmassy, but it's a theological mess. She knew. Thumbs down. <laughs> thumbs down that song. But here we are waiting in the interval between the first appearing and the second appearing, between the first epiphany and the second epiphany. We wait. But we don't wait as those getting tires on a car. We wait expectantly for a new wedding. We wait as pilgrims, moving, sojourners, aliens, journeyers, not just sitting. We wait. You know, there's a book that was written almost 350 years ago now. It's a great book. And it's been abridged and modernized and illustrated and all kinds of things. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. It's actually written from prison, if you didn't know that. Some of you have read the book. It's written by John Bunyan and back in 1678. It's considered one of the greatest works of English literature in history. Right? It's been translated to 200 languages, and in the 340 years it's been out, it's never been out of print. It's an amazing piece of work. In fact, it's free on the Kindle. So if you haven't read that or read it to your kids or gone through an illustrated version of it, you should pick it up. It's a fantastic work. It's been an enduring work a good goal for you in this next year if you haven't read it. It's an allegorical work, most of it written in prose, and it's regarding a, a young man, his name is Christian in it. It's allegorical. His name is Christian, and he travels towards a city called the Celestial City, 
and on and off, he has different companions, and he kind of engages different moments. And it's allegorical of our Christian life today, and it does, it helps you see. Yeah, that's, that is kind of how it feels. That is kind of how it looks like. There's a point in the book earlier in the story where Christian and one of his companions, whose name is Faithful, they enter a city called Vanity Fair. Some of you have read the book, you remember this. Vanity Fair is a city meant to be passed through, yet it traps a lot of people. The trappings and the the values of Vanity Fair grab some meaning to pass through, and it holds them as eternal residents. This is what John Bunyan says as he describes Vanity Fair. He says, Vanity Fair is where all such merchandises are sold. Houses, lands, trades, places, honors, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures. And then it's where exist all kinds of delights. Wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones. And moreover, at this fair, you can always at all times see juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, rogues, and every such kind. Vanity Fair describes what occupies our culture as it waits. Because everybody's waiting. It describes the values in the heart of our culture. But it's a place we're not to be residents in. Vanity Fair is where we are meant to travel through, to pass through as pilgrims, as sojourners. It's not where we live. We have a celestial city waiting for us. This is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says about this passage specifically. He says, we pass through this world as men on pilgrimage. We traverse an enemy's country, going from one manifestation to another. There is no rest for us, by the way. We are to keep ourselves as loose as we can from this country through which we make our pilgrimage, for we are strangers and foreigners, and hear this, we have no continuing city. I think Spurgeon ripped that off. We all rip stuff off from the Bible. I think he took that from the author of Hebrews, who says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come a celestial city, before us. So if I have no lasting city, if you have no lasting city here, we have no continuing place, and as we're pilgrims moving through, how do we engage the vanity fair around us? How do we act? What do we think? Because we are surrounded by vanity fair all day, every day, and you're going to leave this room and go right back out into it very shortly. I've been asking myself, what are my biggest temptations when I wait in this period of pilgrimage, yet waiting? And I think I'm tempted to do one of two things. They're very polar in their nature. One is to escape the vanity fair as fast as I can with as much disgust with what's going on around me. And then the other is to find residency in vanity fair's trappings with great affection, not disgust, but affection, loving the things that vanity fair loves. I think if you're like me and you just want to escape it, I could be tempted to close my eyes and sprint through Vanity Fair as fast as I can, hoping that nothing touches me, rubbing sanitizer all over me, looking around at a great disgust of how horrible things have gotten. Look how horrible people have gotten. Look how horrible places have gotten. Man, it just if Jesus could come back, 
I'm in the world, I'm not of the world. I'm in the world, I'm not of the world. Always reciting that. I'm tempted to do that. That phrase, in the world, not of the world, there's probably four or five passages in the New Testament kind of stitched together to render that phrase. I don't think it's doing the right thing in people, though. I think what it does, whenever we recite and whenever I bump into the person, it's very quick to throw out, hey, I'm just in the world, I'm not of the world. It causes them to lean away from Vanity Fair, lean away from engaging people that really need Jesus because they don't want to catch their shame, dirt, and disgust. It causes detachment in a lot of people. Hey, Luke, I'm living in this world, but only because I have to. The whole thing's going to hell. I don't care about it. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back and end the whole thing. I'm tempted to be like this. Maybe you're tempted to be like this. There is some right thinking in that, and that the, the right part of it is, is this isn't home. But the wrong part of it is, is that we disassociate from the people that Jesus has loved. It's, it's, it's a grand misjudgment. It's a grand misunderstanding. Retreating from Vanity Fair, not very Christmassy. Not very Christmassy. Remember, it was not just a baby in a manger. It was God on mission. God, on, God plunges into our Vanity Fair as a baby. The cries that echoed out that all the animals could hear, that this young mother and father could hear, God on mission all at the same time. Christmas is about life appearing in darkness to bring life to people. Even though the darkness won't understand the light and the people living in the darkness will mishandle the light. You'll catch that in the first chapter of John. Light came into the darkness and the darkness couldn't even comprehend. Jesus was in, not of, but he was there for. In, and I think that's where we can maybe change it a little bit. We are in the world, not of the world, but we're here for the world. In, not of, but yet for what God is doing in the world. That way we emphasize mission over detachment. But when I'm not tempted to escape, I'm tempted to reside permanently with misaimed affections, picking up, drinking deeply of what Vanity Fair values, making it a value of mine as well. In this book, in this story, Christian and faithful, they got busted. Vanity Fair busted them because they sound, it says, three reasons, They sounded differently, their language was different, they looked different, and they didn't value what everyone else around them valued. They were caught. One of them was killed in the story. If we don't get busted, if we're not caught for being distinct, we're not being missionally helpful, we're being missionally useless. I've had to really wrestle with this. At what point am I being useful missionally and connecting And at what point is my distinction so far gone that I'm just kind of useless? Because no one ever, ever became a Christian because of how savvy you are culturally right now. Never happened. None of you, none of you who are in Jesus today came to Jesus because you were around someone that just embodied everything that the world was about. Doesn't happen. So I could grow all of my own food and shop local and read the hipster's guide to life and everything in it. And I could be the most culturally savvy icon that has ever existed. And no one is going to get radically born again because of that. It doesn't happen. Pilgrims and travelers, they are from a distinct place with a distinct language, with distinct values. 
assimilating and drinking in all of the world's values, that's just not Christmassy either. It's not. Right? If Jesus didn't assimilate Vanity Fair and act like Vanity Fair, yet he didn't abandon Vanity Fair, how did he handle it? And when we look at how he handles it, how does it define how we handle it as we wait between two appearings? I have a few points, not many, just three, that I think have been helpful for me to see in Jesus' words to us on how we wait in our waiting room here called life. And this is the first one. Jesus loved where he was going more than where he was. He loved where he was going more than where he was. He was a traveler in a foreign land. I think that's very important for us. We see this in John 17, 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of this world. This is what Jesus was praying to his father right before his passion. Jesus says it very clearly. I'm not of this world. It's what we say. I'm not of this world. Jesus isn't of this world. I'm not of this world. Jesus belongs to me. I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I don't belong here. I belong to him. My money belongs to him. My time belongs to him. My thought life belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. I'm important to God because of what Jesus has done. I belong to God because of what Jesus has done. I am perfect for God because of what Jesus has done. And God is perfect for me because of what Jesus has done. We're perfect for each other because of the gospel. You know, I love Knoxville. I'm a big Knoxville fan and will live out the rest of my days bleeding, breathing, preaching, and building to see God's glory spread through Knoxville. But I don't love it more than I love my celestial city and the king who reigns. I don't. I'm a resident somewhere else first before I'm a resident here, right? Dual citizenship. But my passport, place of origin, not here. I'm a pilgrim. We're pilgrims. We're moving through, right? Here it is, number two how I watch Jesus engaging his vanity fair. Jesus loved the people of the world more than his own life and more than the devices of this world. We see this passage in 1 John 2. John tells us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So Jesus doesn't eat and drink in all the values of the world. He doesn't assimilate everything that Vanity Fair is about into his own life. Yet he loved the world. So how do you, how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile it? He loves creation, broken as it is. He loves creation. Remember, all the world, all of creation was made through him. He loves his creation, but not the devices that we as broken creation develop. Not in love with that. He loved the world more than he loved himself, actually. It's a different kind of love. Step number three, real quickly. Jesus was zealous for good works. He came for the ultimate act that was zealous as our sacrificial hero. 
And and for that, I want to go back to our main passage, verse 13 of Titus 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All that means, that word zealous, it just means stirred into enthusiasm, stirred into an excitement, stirred into a passage. He offered himself. That's what it means. When you see that, and he says that he gave himself, the language behind that renders, in the reader's mind, or at least the ancient reader's mind, a priest offering a sacrifice. Of course, we have a better priest because he didn't just offer a sacrifice. He offered himself as not just our last sacrifice, but our last priest as well. No need for any more priests. Sorry. He was the last. He finishes the line. He offered himself as a sacrificial offering, and he did this to present a people, to present a people for a better wedding. He came to win a people from their lawlessness into zealousness with a stirred enthusiasm, not as one waiting to get tires put on their car, but as one waiting to get married. I think this is what our wait looks like. I think, we, I think we zealously love the people of Vanity Fair, yet we represent a different place, trying to bring as many as we can with us to the celestial city. I think this is Christmassy. I think this is the, the whole point of Christmas when you look at it. If we just say Christmas is about a baby being born, we have fallen so woefully short of what it is really about. Without the second advent in mind, the first one seems... A little odd, maybe. Why celebrate? Why celebrate a baby coming to live among us if you don't understand that a king is coming back for us? I think we fill our waiting room experience here on earth with zealous works, not so that God will do zealous works for us, but because he's already done a zealous act for us. So our zealousness in our works, it answers his zealousness. It doesn't appeal for it. If you do zealous works, which is our prayer as a church, we all want to be zealous, enthusiastic with our works. It's not an application to get God to be zealous with us. It's an echo and an answer and a moment of thanksgiving for the zealous life he's already lived and the zealous passion he showed us on the cross, and the zealous activity of God for raising him from the dead in a tomb. Our life is filled with these zealous works as we wait for a second appearing. Personally, I want to be busted. When, when Jesus comes on a white horse, I want to be busted investing in Vanity Fair, not escaping it, not living in it. I want to be caught as a pilgrim, in investing my life. We will all, when the second advent comes, be caught, or when death finds us, we will be busted doing something. We'll be busted, either investing in Vanity Fair, escaping Vanity Fair, embracing Vanity Fair. Here's some questions for you. I ask myself these questions all week. I will be found clinging to Vanity Fair sometimes, adopting what the culture values. On my bad days, I'll find myself here, and I have to ask myself, what do I love now that shows me to be more of a resident with my feet planted over a traveler with a different love? 
What does my value look like? What values and language am I a part of this Vanity Fair more than Celestial City? And in this china cabinet of my heart where I keep all of my trophies, all the special things, what is it that God looks into this china cabinet and says, that is not of me? I have loves, and that's not a love I have. You love something, and you treasure, and you value something that is way, way out of bounds, not something I would have in a china cabinet. What would that look like for you? Where have you drank deep from the well that is just our culture? Where have you forgotten that you're a pilgrim? Another bad day, you'll find me abandoning this vanity fair, and shaking the dust off my feet. How we love to use that passage, don't we? That's usually code for, it's too hard for me. I don't like the way they've treated me, so I'm just going to kick the dirt off my feet, because after all, that's what the apostles did. Not correctly used. Where have I given up on people prematurely and judged them too dirty for me and too costly for my time? Where have I done that? Where do I act like my time in vanity fair is a punishment? And so therefore, use it and leverage it as a time to retreat and just wait for Jesus to come back and burn the whole thing down. Am I ready to be occupied with great anticipation for a wedding until my king returns? What's going on in my heart as I wait? I think depending on what day you find me, I'm going to struggle with a lot of these things. But I think the mark for us is simply by looking at what Jesus did and the fact that he was a pilgrim zealous for the good works that glorified his father, bringing as many people with him as possible. Not loving Vanity Fair for all of its values, but loving Vanity Fair for all the people and pouring his life out. You know, John Bunyan, he wrote a great book, Pilgrim's Progress, and he actually wrote more material than that, but he only wrote one poem in his life, which is why I know he's a man after my heart. I'm not a big poetry guy. But this is the last part of the only poem he wrote. He says, Hobgoblin, nor foul fiend, can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies fly away. He'll fear not what men say. He'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. This Christmas, this is what I find heavy on my heart, to be a better pilgrim because one came for me. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. The good news for us is that Jesus does return on a white horse and provides us hope for a place much better than Vanity Fair. This is not the best. If you are in Jesus, this is not, this is not the best. It's just going to be better for you, for God's family. In fact, I'm going to put a passage up on the screen. We can read it before we leave, and it is in Revelation 19, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. But in Revelation 19, verse 9, we see an image of a second advent, a second coming. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. That right there is just cool enough. What was in a manger crying out as a baby is now crying out with a double-edged sword instead from the back of a horse of victory leading a people of triumph behind him. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Isn't that interesting? On earth he had a name. It was Jesus. 
<clears throat> he had a common name. Jesus was a common name. Now he has a name that's very uncommon, and no one even knows it. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So just imagine the first advent. This king of all creation enters, and the best they can do is wrap him with, with cloth and just random things, and like a, an old shirt here and a sock there. I mean, whatever cloth they could come up with wrapping this king of creation, and now he has a robe that truly shows his royalty. It's a better advent. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So he was born on a silent night, piercing silence, piercing darkness. He would live a perfect life and then die on a cross where he receives himself the wrath of God the Almighty. He would receive it. What was due for you, what was due for me, he would receive it on his own back for our benefit. And now at the end of all ends, when time is tied up, he comes back and he will execute it on the rest of creation that would not bow its knee. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a beautiful passage, and as we wait with held breath in this interval between comings, between advents, we're going to wait as pilgrims, pointing our lives in a way that zealously shows who our God truly is, leading other pilgrims to join us as we go along on mission to this city. So as you celebrate Christmas this year, keep the end in mind. Keep the end in mind. You don't worship just a baby. Careful. Careful. He is fully man. He's also fully God. You worship a king in victory, total victory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us, God, that you show us the whole picture, Lord, that our Christmases, we don't have to be stuck just on an entrance. But, Father, we see a reprise. We see you come back in a second advent, another epiphany that truly defines who we are, truly defines who you are, Father. You finish this gospel story. Gra just when I think of what you've done, I know that grace does not come in the past. And grace is not here just to instruct us today. But as you tell us in Titus, grace is waiting for us. And Lord, in this time, this waiting room, as pilgrims in this vanity fair, we can do zealous works because of what you've done. Father, we love you this Christmas, this Christmas. Father, help us see as we worship, as we sing, as we rest, as we eat, as we laugh. Father, help us keep the end in mind that we would worship you completely. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.